Okay, good evening everyone and welcome to today's seminar uh, which is entitled Climb the Green Ladder, How Sustainability Can Make your, You and Your Company More Successful. I'd like to start off by positioning um, today's seminar and my name is Richard Perkins and I'm a, I'm a lecturer here at the LSE. Um, just positioning it within a broader scheme of what this actually is, a, um, um, is a, an example of, which is sustainability and practice. And this is the first of a whole series of seminars on sustainability and practice organised by the sustainability team here at the London School of Economics. And it's sustainability and practice in two ways. One reason this is sustainability and practice is this is part and parcel of the sustainability team's um, environmental management system. And as part of this environmental management system and environmental policy, um, they're engaging in education for sustainable development. So that underpins this set of lectures or set of seminars uh, of, about sustainability and practice. And it's also about sustainability and practice because this is a different type of seminar. Unlike some of the seminars we, we perhaps have here in the LSE, it's less academic in tone and more practitioner-oriented. It's more practical, meant to guide us about how we can think about acting on sustainability in actual practical ways. So, on to today's subject, um, which is Climb the Green Ladder. And I'd like to start off by introducing our three speakers. Um, and we've actually got, to start off with, we've got Amy Fetzer. And Amy is a consultant, she's a journalist, and she's also an author. And she's just authored this book called Climb the Green Ladder, um, which you will be able to purchase just outside this, um, this lecture hall after this event. Um, and it's a very inspiring book. I've been reading it at the weekend. Um, and like some other books you read on sustainability, which are all analytical, quite deep, etc., going into kind of the theories of sustainability, it actually is full of practical advice and practical inspiring case studies. We've also got um, uh, Ed Gillespie. And Ed is a co-founder and creative director of Futera Sustainability Communications, um, a green sustainability uh, communications consultancy and we've also got Joe Confino who's the executive editor and head of sustainable development at The Guardian um, I'm sure all of you know The Guardian's got very very good environmental reporting, very very good uh, opinion pieces on the environment as well so thank you very much for coming and I'd just like to welcome um, and invite Amy to speak, thank you Well, thanks very much, Richard. And uh, it's lovely to have so many people here today for the Climb the Green Ladder, first Climb the Green Ladder lecture. And uh, I just want to start with a question. So, do you want to get ahead in your career and develop a reputation as a creative, dynamic achiever? Or would you like to make your workplace or your university more sustainable? Well, if you answered yes to either of those questions, you've come to the right place. Basically, this lecture... Um, is to celebrate the launch of my new book, Climb the Green Ladder, Make Your Company and Career More Sustainable. But it's also an auspicious occasion because it's the very first of LSE's sustainability and practice lectures. And I must say a huge thank you to Dr. Victoria Hans and Faye Conte, who've done an incredible job in making today happen. And the aim of this lecture and my book is to help you make a difference. And so I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about the book. Now, I wrote this book with uh, my co-author, Shari Aaron. Now, unfortunately, 
Shari's based in New York, so it really wouldn't have been sustainable for her to be here today. So you've just got me. Um, but we wrote Climb the Green Ladder because it seemed like every event we went to, every conversation we had around sustainability, people were asking the same question, what can I do? And yet the answers that were coming back were really unsatisfying. There were things that were maybe important, like changing light bulbs, but they just seemed rather trivial given the enormity of the problem. The other issue that um, seemed to be going around was a question of responsibility. Whose responsibility was it to tackle this challenge? Was it up to corporations to green up their act? Was it up to government to legislate? Or was it up to us as individuals to change our behavior? But what everyone seemed to be ignoring in this huge debate was the fact that governments and corporations are made up of individuals. And that means that we have the power to change them from within, to set them on more successful and more sustainable paths. Now, I knew this was possible because I'd heard stories, stories of people like Ed and Joe, people who'd actually made change happen. But the problem was that these stories were obviously often under the radar, and they were quite hard to hear about, and the things that you heard in the press were really negative and depressing. And when you did get a valuable nugget of advice, often it was couched in jargon, or you got little bits of information, but it was dispersed. And it was really hard to get, there was nowhere where all this information was in one place, in clear, plain, precise English, that you could apply to your own everyday work situation. The other thing I knew was, is that sustainability spells success. Because as an organization, as a company, you can use sustainability to generate income. So you can allow you to, uh, you've got more increased tendering opportunities because so many ha people have green procurement guidelines these days. It can increase your brand reputation, reduce your risk, all sorts of things. It can also, being unsustainable, cost money. All the money that you waste in wasted energy, wasted materials, resources, the lost sales when a toxic turns up in your products or workers' rights hit the headlines. It's also a hugely smart career move because if you can show your company, your organization, that how to save and make money, well, my God, you're destined to the top because you're going to be marked out as a dynamic, creative achiever who's you know, really going to help your organization or company get, stay, you know, stay in business for a very long time. So what we did was we set out to uncover the secrets of these successful sustainability initiatives. And we wanted to bring all this information together in plain English, with no jargon, with lots of real-life case studies so people could work out how to apply this information in their own everyday world of work. Now, to find this out, we did a big online survey and 430 people completed it. We also interviewed 80 sustainability specialists like Ed and Joe, and we teased out the secrets to their success. And what we discovered was that all sustainability initiatives were underpinned by the same underlying principles. And these are get the mindset, make the business case, get your colleagues on your side, have two-way conversations, I've just forgotten one, uh, work together, <laughs> and uh, make, it part of the uh, make it part of the culture. And it didn't seem to matter what level you were within a company. You could be a work experience placement, you could be the CEO. It didn't seem to matter what industry you're in, whether it was education, uh, pharmaceuticals, or IT. And it really didn't seem to matter about the scale of your ambition, whether you just wanted to get your dorm recycling or perhaps you wanted to get your whole, revamp your whole entire supply chain. These same principles could help you make your sustainability initiative a success. 
And if you make it a success, well, that's brilliant for your career because you're meeting your targets and you're doing good things for your company. So it was just a win-win situation. The other thing is that we found is that when people lived their values at work, when they brought these concerns, they actually fell in love with work again as well. Because when you live your values, you know, you're much more motivated and it becomes much more than just a job. So Ed and Joe have seen these principles in practice. And it's, I'm absolutely thrilled that they're here today because they can share with you some of their real-life experiences and stories about sustainability in the workplace. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you back to Richard, who's going to introduce our first speaker. But I think you're in for a treat. Ed, would you like to um, kick off? So, climbing the green ladder. Um, I've been running Futera now for almost nine years. Uh, when we first started out, uh, when we were sort of working on climate change and issues like this, uh, it was a bit like wetting yourself whilst wearing a dark suit. Uh, no one noticed, but it gave you a warm feeling inside. Um, now, obviously, everyone is saying we're taking action on sustainability, and it's a bit like teenage sex. Uh, everyone says they're doing it. Very few people actually are, and those that are doing it are doing it quite badly. <coughs> These are very old jokes, but like a good environmentalist, I recycle them again and again and again. Um, so I started out, actually, as a, I trained as a marine biologist, and actually I was going to offer you a quick insight into my own background, because the reason I got into sustainability and sustainability communications uh, was because I got very frustrated at being ignored as a fisheries biologist. Um, you can only say, please stop catching all the fish so many times before you get a little bit hoarse. Um, so... Nearly nine years ago, we founded Futera, uh, and our mission, if you like, was to create knowledge, challenge the beliefs, and inspire the appropriate action around sustainability, and that's what we've been doing um, ever since. And our founding principle was actually to make sustainable development so desirable it becomes normal. Uh, I and mean, this was a backlash against the kind of negative, doom-mongering campaigning of traditional environmentalism, and to say, actually, this should be the sexy stuff. This should be the smart choices. This should be about the experiments in better ways of living and working and finding you know, the real sustainability nub at the heart of things, not back telling people off and finger-wagging uh, and, and trying to punish people all the time. Um, if you want to put it more colloquially, we called ourselves the agency that actually gives a shit. Because at the, at the heart of what we were doing was a passionate motivation to want to try to change the world. Uh, you know, and we're very, very committed uh, in wanting to achieve that. And over the last nine years, we've worked with all sorts of different companies, as Amy was saying. Uh, you know, a whole diversity of different clients, from sort of FTSE 100 stalwarts uh, to practically every single UK government department, to campaigning organisations like Greenpeace uh, and international bodies like the United Nations. And, and the common thread running through this has been trying to find the positive solutions-oriented approach to environmental and sustainability challenges. And we've done this through some quite influential thought leadership in terms of challenging uh, assumptions about the way to engage people uh, on issues around sustainability. And these are just some of the ones uh, you can download from our website. Uh, you'll probably find some interesting blogs about these um, as of today because a, a couple of our reports were mentioned in, in Tyndall Center emails uh, that got hacked last week. Um, so as a consequence, I've been fending off all sorts of rather um, acerbic climate denial um, emails all day, um, accusing me of being a kind of Machiavellian, Third Reich propagandist, um, a kind of eco-Nazi, uh, all sorts of things. So this is all kind of grist to our mill um, when we come to trying to engage people. And the very first thing we produced in terms of thought leadership was our, our ten rules of sustainability. And if you like, 
This is like the embodiment of everything we try to do. And you can see why these might work within a workplace environment for trying to get your colleagues on board, for celebrating people who've really delivered uh, radical achievement. But where are we actually in the big picture? And before we sort of talk a bit more about what we can all do, um, I think it's important to understand the context in which we all operate. And, you know, whilst I love the kind of moves to get people away from the plastic bags, you know, on the environmental thing, and we say, well, I'm not taking my plastic bags, I'm doing my bit for the climate. Um, this is actually inherently superficial. Uh, and the real challenge, if you like, for us as individuals and as people who work within large organizations is trying to bridge this gap between personal and professional values. Why should you have to leave your personal values at home or you know, locked up to the bike rack outside uh, rather than bringing them into the workplace with you? And the problem is, is whilst people say that they're engaging on our environmental and sustainability challenges, Actual fact, the evidence shows that our willingness to act is actually inversely proportional uh, to the impact of those particular actions. And this is a real problem, because actually people use this as a bargaining tool and saying, well, actually, I've done my plastic bags. I'm not doing plastic bags anymore. Therefore, I don't need to do anything else on environmental challenges. And the same thing happens within organizations as well. Especially um, in the wider context where the message coming out from government uh, in our wonderful uh, market-based capitalist economy uh, is to get out there and shop. That's the way we prop up the economic uh, turnover of the country. Um, or to put it a little bit more colloquially, uh, buy more shit or we're all fucked. Um, and this has been the sort of mantra for so long. And actually... This is why sustainability is so important within organizations, because it forces people to think creatively and innovatively about new ways of providing products and services, which aren't necessarily based on massive amounts of material consumption, but still generate the same or similar levels of economic activity. And that, if you like, is the art. And it's, the example of that might be to try and change a relationship as an energy company with your consumers of saying, well, we want to actually be an energy service provider. Rather than just flogging you more fuel, we're going to think very creatively about what the new sustainable business model is. So it's not about axing revenue. It's about thinking about more innovative ways of generating it. And, you know, we obviously have a battle on our hands because... You know, we are actually still involved in this mass consumption economy. And there are, there are great climate change scientists who've said that actually what we might need is a managed recession to get ourselves out of the current mess because we don't have a way of delivering low-carbon consumption at the moment. Once we've invented uh, low-carbon consumption, then we can consume as much as we like. But we're, we're not there yet. And I need to anthropomorphize a little here because there's something kind of fundamental sort of stewing along in the background. And I'm sure this is something that you guys in this room are all familiar with. Um, but let's take our quality of life and let's call it Peter. Um, uh, and let's take um, GDP and we'll call that Katie. So Peter and Katie got together, you know, and they, they grew together over the years and it was a wonderful relationship. Um, but the trouble was, at some point in the early 70s, they diverged. So our quality of life and our life satisfaction didn't get any happier, but we continued to get richer. Uh, and this has been the problem. You know, so Katie's assets have got larger, but Peter hasn't got any happier. And, and this is actually the nub of a lot of what we're talking about. You know, we are living in this age where in, of increased material consumption that hasn't made us any more content. And so we need to think of smarter ways of making ourselves happier. And I think one of the key ways is by creating more meaning in our lives, both personally and professionally. And that's what sustainability at work is all about. 
Yeah, and as if we didn't have enough to worry about, you know, even if this whole climate change thing is a complete uh, conspiracy theory, which, you know, I'm pretty much 100% certain it's not, um, you know, you've got the issues of peak oil. You know, we are still, particularly in the developed world, largely dependent on, on international sources of fuel rather than domestic. So there's a real energy security and energy sustainability and energy stability um, argument underpinning all of this work. All of this stuff makes sense to do even if climate change does not exist. So as a consequence of all of that, you know, you start to think, well, do we need to pull our heads out of our backsides? Are we actually doing a kind of very, very probing self-examination here without actually seeing the bigger picture? Um, and a lot of people say, well, this is all very well, Ed, you know, but we're actually in a very difficult economic time at the moment. You know, how do you reconcile all these tensions uh, when we're just coming out of a recession? And I think that's ironic because actually there's really interesting parallels you can draw between our kind of environmental challenges and some of our economic ones. And a lot of the problems that happened, you know, a couple of miles down the road in the city in terms of the derivatives trading and the toxic debt were to do with people trying to do too much with too little without the necessary financial capital underpinning their activities. And if you like, we're doing a very similar thing ecologically. We're, li we're drawing down on our ecological capital and not living off the bountiful interest it could give us. You know, and fisheries is a classic example of this. You know, we will only probably realise it's too late as we're hauling the last bluefin tunas out of the ocean. And this is a sobering thought. You know, and in many ways, actually both ecologically and financially, the emperor has been revealed to be wearing no clothes. Uh, and now, in the aftermath of this kind of resolution and realisation, we can do clever, creative and innovative things uh, to change the way we live and work. Um, and the government itself has talked about you know, a populist movement giving it the licence and giving it the remit uh, to take more radical action on things like climate change. And uh, This is a lovely shot from the G20 protests just down the road here in July. Uh, this is a police medic actually probably taking the principle of uh, um, self-employment to a somewhat um, extreme level. And, and it is confused. I'm not saying this stuff is easy, and Amy said at the beginning, it's not simple. Um, and you get adverts like this. This is from Tesco's. Uh, this is low-energy light bulbs for air miles. So, you know, buy a low-energy light bulb and get free air miles. So these send sort of very muddled messages out to consumers. And so there's, there's confusion even within organisations, you know. And in some way, uh, Tesco is, can be quite radical and quite innovative in their kind of engagement on things like climate change. Um, I'm not saying they provide all the solutions, but they're still at home uh, to cock up as well. And also, we have a sort of cultural backlash. I think it's really important to understand how we culturally engage. And again, this is about trying to find the positive solution. In the context of climate change, probably the simplest, easiest thing we're going to be asked to do is to change our light bulbs. Uh, and yet, even that simple thing has already created a backlash uh, and a furore around people wanting to cling on to their incandescent bulbs. There's something that happens psychologically uh, in, in human beings' minds when they feel like something is being taken away from them. So even whether you're engaging within your peer group or within your company, you, know, you need to be very careful and clever uh, about, about the way you go in with people. But we are in a land and a landscape of unusual alliances, and even The Sun uh, is now a kind of climate campaigning newspaper, and I never thought I'd see the day uh, where, when this happened. Of course, they do do it in their own inimitable style, um, and then The Sun has to appeal to its readers in a way that they are comfortable with. But so much of this has become about making sustainability remarkable. 
As I say, this is not a dry engagement. This is about the kind of thing we should all be talking about. It should be the buzz on people's lips that gets people excited. Uh, and this is taken from a quote from a famous uh, marketeer in the States, a guy called Seth Godin, who said, if you saw a purple cow in a field, you'd talk about it. It's, it's remarkable. You'd be telling your friends. You'd be telling your people at work. And actually what we need on climate change and sustainability is to make it remarkable to make it something that people can own and discuss in their own terms. And that's when you start to see big change delivered. And it's also tough when you have this kind of huge importance placed on a very sort of dry, uh, bureaucratic process that's about to be going on in Copenhagen in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, and even though this may be seem somewhat deflated at the moment because of the lack of a, a kind of really edgy deal, we are still in denial, and actually this is where the opportunity lies for people wanting to get into this field, because organisations and businesses are still in denial. And denial is a very attractive place to be if you start to look at what climate change and sustainability challenges really mean tangibly for business. It means you don't have to change. It lets you off the hook. It means you don't have to be radical, you don't have to think creatively. But it will be the businesses which are flexible and reactive and really understand this agenda that will definitively prosper in the next 10, 20 years as you guys are entering and building your own careers. And I think that is kind of the bottom line on all of this. And we talk about denial and people say, well, you know, climate change is not really going on. Um, we haven't seen the consequences uh, of climate change. Oh, well, this is from Darfur, which is, you know, one of the first climate change exacerbated resource conflicts. You know, it's not just an ethnic conflict. That ethnic conflict is fueled by a resource conflict which is exacerbated by climate change. So we're already starting to see the type of things we're going to get more of. Um, we've all seen the floods in Cumbria, you know, the once-in-a-thousand-year event. Uh, this is from Scotland a, a month or so back. You know, what we're getting is these erratic weather patterns where you get all your rain for two months in one place in one day. Now, that's unusual, and that's caused catastrophic flooding, and we're going to see a lot more of that. So people are saying, well... I haven't experienced climate change. Look around you, it's already happening. And despite that, we still get denial. This is uh, Viscount Monckton, um, an esteemed classics scholar, um, who's obviously well qualified to go up against the combined might of the world's global climate scientists. Um, and actually, denial is still growing. You know, and I talked about the kind of um, stuff that's been happening in the media today and the emails that I've been receiving. But we do have to get around this sense of denial and the fact that even, as I said, if it's not happening, there's still umpteen good reasons for doing this stuff. Um, this is just a, a lovely image which I, I always put in my presentation just because I think this is the kind of evocative image that sort of has a really ambiguous meaning because on the one hand it tells us about the melting ice caps on Greenland, uh, on the other it's just a beautiful striking image and you try not to get too obsessed with the aesthetics. Um, but basically where we're at is it's sort of an Alice in Wonderland scenario where we, we believe six impossible things before breakfast. So we can continue to expand airports and grow aviation uh, while still having a legally binding commitment. So that's a legally binding commitment for the UK government to reduce our emissions here by 80% by 2050. And that sounds like a long way away. But actually it's not, and, you know, the, especially the kind of infrastructure decisions which are being made in the energy sector and the financing deals which are being done now means we are more or less launching the infrastructure projects which will still be with us in 2050, by which point we will have had to decarbonise the energy supply to more or less zero. So these are pretty sobering challenges, big scale, innovative, creative challenges that we have to address. Uh, and in this sense, you know, perhaps we are living in the age of stupid. I don't know who's seen the film here. Um, I kind of recommend it as a wake-up call, but 
what they say in this film is like, it's like we're standing on the shore staring at the small patch of sand beneath our feet as a tsunami races towards us. And that's, that, that's where we're at, and this is where we've got to wake up. And of course we've got the 1010 campaign. I understand the uh, LSE Students' Union is signed up to this. The institution itself, not quite yet. Um, so come on, if anyone here has any influence, um, sign on the dotted line. And what this is saying is like, it's trying to create this can-do culture, which is so important, but the fact that we can do 10% cuts in carbon emissions in one year, in 2010. And that would create an enormous pressure wave uh, of activity and give this government, um, or the next government, the remit it requires um, to go for more radical policy. So it is going from niche to mainstream. This stuff is taking off. And even if it's at a relatively superficial level uh, at the moment, you know, you can look at all these kind of eco-chic, green is the new black, you know, um, kind of magazines. But in short, both us as individuals and as employees within organizations, we're still confused about what we need to do. You know, there's a sort of fog of concern in people's heads where all of these environmental issues are mixed in with MRSA and swine flu and the forthcoming apocalypse and, you know, all of these type of issues get sort of mixed up into this fog of concern. Uh, and what we need to do, try and do is unpick that. Um, I just wanted to share four things that I really hate. Um, about the way people talk about the environment and the way people talk about sustainability uh, w within organisations. Firstly, is like being unnecessarily complicated. This is not rocket science. You know, it can be broken down into easily digestible chunks that people can manage uh, to digest and chew on easily. Second one is nagging people. Um, we're really good at that, uh, and I think if you want to climb the green ladder, the best thing you could do is learn how to positively engage people on this, because people are so much more enthusiastic uh, when you speak about it in an upbeat uh, and engaging fashion. Um, thirdly, the use of kind of guilt or passive aggression. Um, and again, this is another kind of method of approach that we've often used in order to engage people um, on, on issues like climate change sustainability. And finally, being boring. Um, hopefully I haven't been boring this evening. Um, there's not anyone nodding off quite yet, but we'll see. Uh, but, you know, this, this stuff, I said, should be the stuff that gets you um, sat up, bolt upright in your seat uh, and on the edge of your seat. And also we've got to make it a pleasure. And some of the most successful things that we've been involved in in Futera over the years are the things that have made it a pleasure, uh, like our clothes swapping parties or our swishing parties. And this has become a global phenomenon uh, because it turns the, the kind of, reduction in material consumption into a joy. You go to a clothes swapping party, you come away with something beautiful, uh, and you haven't had to consume any resources in the process. And finally, just the, la the last couple of slides, I wanted to talk about you know, the, kind of, the people who do it in a half-baked way, uh, and the companies that will get found out um, if they get it wrong. And greenwash is actually quite a pernicious phenomenon. And greenwash is kind of advertising or marketing or positioning claims by companies uh, which aren't substantiated by evidence. Uh, so the kind of things that people are over-claiming on. And it became such a kind of terrible phenomenon in the last two years that we wrote a guide about it last year. Because what happens is if you've got an enlightened and increasingly empowered green consumer base uh, and you're using uh, unsubstantiated green claims to influence your marketing and try and sell people more stuff. The danger is you'll have a whole backlash uh, against the green pound and actually consumers will then switch off and just see environmental criteria as another way of flogging them more stuff. So greenwash is pernicious and um, 
you know, it's about repositioning organizations, and it, but it's a, more than that. It's about challenging companies not just to think about this as a communications challenge, but to think about it from a core business perspective. It's not just about housekeeping, it's, it's about what you do internally. Um, and so, for example, this gentleman here has his eco wind powered chainsaw, but he's still going to cut down the tree. Uh, and that's really where we're at in terms of some of these businesses that haven't quite gripped or, or grasped what the challenge actually means. And so there's the 10 signs of greenwash there, which you can see in the guide. And we're all familiar with the type of advertising, you know, the positions, uh, you know, the car on the empty mountain road with no other vehicles in sight, um, or the ones where they get their messaging a little bit wrong. Um, or this one, which is actually, we actually mocked up the uh, classic example of what uh, a greenwash advert would look like in its worst incarnation. Um, so, you know, fly green jet, you know, this mock um, assurance thing at the bottom. Um, and you can kind of see the critiques of fluffy language and the kind of associated green in imagery. And then much to my surprise, you know, we practically saw the very advert appear in reality. So we are in a situation where we're almost beyond satire. So... To conclude, I think this is an enormously exciting time to be in getting involved in sustainability. So I've been doing it for over nine years. I was a lot thinner and had more hair when I started, uh, but I wouldn't change it for the world because being involved in these organisations which are wrestling with real change is incredibly exciting. You do feel like you're at the leading edge, if not the bleeding edge uh, of innovation and genuine innovation out there. Um, I'd sort of challenge you to think about this from the context of the bystander effect. Um, and what I'd like to see is what, whatever sector you want to go into, whether it's energy, whether it's transport, whether it's communications, whether it's retail, you know, everyone has a role to play in this. And I talk about the bystander effect because what the bystander effect says is if you fall over in the street and hurt yourself, you better hope there's only one person there to help you. Because if there's just one person there, they'll step up. If there's a whole crowd, everyone looks around and goes, oh no, he's fallen over in the street. I really hope someone else goes and helps him. And the thing is, climate change and sustainability suffers from the biggest bystander effect. Because everyone goes, oh my God, it's such a big challenge, it's so urgent and so pressing that somebody must be doing something about it. Uh, and unfortunately, that someone is each and every one of us as individuals. Uh, and that's what we need to go out there and do, is look at this positively, focus on a vision of the positive future we're trying to achieve, and then get out there and deliver it. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, I'm actually very cross with Ed because um, Ed basically said everything I was going to say and did it with much greater style and wit. So um, I appreciate that, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I take from what... I mean, Ed is a, a great communicator and he helps companies communicate. And I think um, the problem is that when you actually look at what companies are actually doing and what companies are really taking this seriously is very, very few. You always get the same companies mentioned time and time again. Most companies, to be honest, still don't get it. They don't take this seriously. They don't understand the impacts. And I think what, what Ed said, you know, there, there's this extraordinary denial going, going on. And, and it's just really, really difficult because we're, we're having to work with sort of deep psychology to understand how people, why, why it is we're in this situation and how to get, into, get out of it. And I was reading an article the other day about um, this man who died of toothache. And he, it was quite an extraordinary story because he got a bad tooth and then it started to get infected. And then he started drinking alcohol to get rid of the pain because he didn't want to go to the dentist. And then a week later he was dead. 
And it's that sense that, you know, we know there's a problem. We know the scale of the problem. I'm not going to go through it. You know, as Ed showed you the pictures, we've got drought, we've got flooding. You know, climate change is already upon us. We already see in different parts of the world, and especially the people who are the poorest who are suffering already. And yet we cannot get ourselves to sort of move beyond and actually change our behavior. And the way I see it is that we are, we are addicted. You know, we, you know, addicted people are always deny they're addicted. And that's the problem we, we, in our society. We, we live in an addictive society. And we have, we're built on an economic system of growth. And as Ed said, it's all around consume, consume to be happy. And because we're getting increasingly unhappy, we consume more. And the unfortunate thing is that most change happens in people's lives, and this happens in people's individual lives. Most change happens only in a crisis. Most people don't like to change when everything's fine or when the problem's not big enough. People only change when they've had a heart attack or when their partner has died or when there's something of such a shocking magnitude. And the problem is that even though we're aware of the significance of the problem, we cannot really deny it, even though a few people do, there's just this complete inability for people to actually really change their behavior. And, you know, the, the danger is, on the negative side, you know, we talk about climbing the green ladder, we also ride down the snakes. And the problem is that actually the likelihood is that we're actually going to act too late. We're already acting too late. We're looking that it's very difficult to get any political consensus for change. We're recognizing that business, which I'm going to come to in a minute, does not want to change. And the fact is that business is there to make profit. And it still has, you know, Ed talks very, very, good, very well about the fact that in the future, you know, companies will start to get it. They can't, you know, there's only so long denial can happen. But at the moment, they still don't get it. Most companies don't want to change. They're still talking in a very masculine language about dominating markets, about expansion. No company wants to contract. It's just no company wants to conceive that actually they have to change their business model. They, they, they just don't want to. And you look at the city, the city isn't interested, the city isn't asking the right questions, the city is not challenging, all the investors are not challenging business to change. So overall, we're in a really, really difficult situation. So that's, that's the negative. Um, on the positive side, I, I just wanted to talk, rather than go through what, um, a repetition of what Ed said in a more boring way, I think it might just be useful to talk about my own journey because Ed's given this sort of broad, broad brush approach. Um, but I think the thing for me is about the ability of individuals, which was what Amy said, the ability of individuals to create change. And I think, you know, there's that thing Ed was saying, that, that the scale of the problem is so big that it's very easy to feel disempowered. It's very easy as an individual to think, what difference can I make? And of course, the truth is that it's only the difference individuals make that actually creates a collective uh, change. That individuals are part of families, they're part of communities, they're part of businesses, they're part of countries. You know, change has to start with the individual. And it's only when that becomes a collective understanding that the politicians start to have the courage to create change and you actually start to get movement. Um, in my own experience, I was uh, at The Guardian and I was the business news editor. And... From my own perspective, it didn't come about, my interest didn't come around climate change because, of course, sustainability isn't just about climate change. And I think it's really important to, to recognize that climate change is like a big black hole. It just sucks all the energy out. It doesn't actually take into account 
all the social, the social injustice. It doesn't take into account resource degradation. There's, sustainability isn't climate change. Climate change is a very, very large element of sustainability, but it's not all of it. And the way I came at it was just recognizing that The Guardian is an extraordinary company because it's not profit maximizing. We are an incredibly privileged organization. We are profit seeking, but we don't, very, we don't really find any profits, but we're profit seeking, but we are actually owned by a foundation. We're owned by a foundation that has a purpose and has values. And we're not about making money. We're about independent liberal journalists. We're about challenging the world and challenging people about the status quo, about looking at the inequalities of society. And actually, it's, it's an extraordinary um, culture at The Guardian that when you actually take profit as being the only, the only sort of purpose out, you generate a business which is really extraordinary. It's around people. You, get, you, take, you, take, you take the mechanistic side out because actually profit creates a mechanistic attitude to life. And that's the problem. Ever since the Enlightenment, we've become, we've become increasingly mechanistic and we've lost our sense of identity and, and what, what Ed was saying you know, about who we are and how we respond to the world and, and our connections. We've lost our connectivity. That's why we consume, because we have lost our connectivity to people around us, to ourselves. And The Guardian is fantastic because it has that connectivity. It has people who work together, who think together. It's an incredible environment. And that's the positive side of it. And where I came to it was actually recognizing that, you know, we live in a duality. And you have light and you have dark. It's, it's just there's all, there's all every, everywhere is a duality. And in one sense, we have a very, we have a bright way of working. In another way, um, we had a way that wasn't very positive. And I started working at the garden to change because I actually felt that in some ways we weren't living up to our values. And I think the important thing about values is that you can never assume values. There are lots of companies that are creating values because they think they have to have a mission statement. And, and values are an extraordinarily um, sensitive and, and um, they, they, they come to the heart of us. They're about who we are. They're about what, what is it we stand up for in life. And it's very difficult to generate values and actually then make a company. Companies want to have values because they want people to, you know, they want to create it, but actually it, it's very hard to, to really create it. And at The Guardian, we had those values but actually, we were assuming it, and, I, and I, I found that as soon as you assume values, you tend to uh, be in danger of losing them, because you need to really work with values. You need to be conscious of values, and I wanted to make sure that those values came back into the really the heart of what the Guardian was and brought back to life. And the way I did that was very simple, actually. I, I produced, started producing this report, which I think you can all have a copy of. It's called Living Our Values, and. For me, there are lots of companies, and Ed will hopefully, hopefully agree with this, there are lots of companies that produce these reports. And these reports are PR-generated. They're often about telling a good story. They're never actually about change. I know people, I know consultants, I know people who write these reports for companies. Most, 95% of them is just PR. They don't tell the truth. They don't tell you what's really going on. They don't challenge. And what I did was I took this idea and actually used as an agent of change. Because actually, how do you get a business to start changing its behavior? Well, one of the best ways is you have to get it to start, you have to start coming alongside, you can't, you can't fight business. Business is all consuming. We live in a capitalist society. We live in a society which is about competition. It's about measurement. All those things that, that may not be the most human of values, but actually, that's what we've got. 
And I found the most important way to start changing was actually to come alongside. You have to, to change an organization, you have to act like a business. And that means you have to measure. And it's really boring. I don't particularly like measurement, but you have to measure. To create change, you have to measure. You have to, you have to show what the problem is. You have to show what the solution is. You have to set targets. And so this report, which is now, I think, in its seventh year, is, is actually, for me as a journalist, is about creating change in an organization. It's my ability to go into the organization and challenge managers and say, why hasn't this been done? What do we need to do? Setting targets and then having an independent auditor who actually comes in and actually checks. So it's about having someone who challenges us. And I think that's a really important thing about change in an organization. You have to work with the organization. So um, I did a master's recently at Bath University, and, and, and what we were one of the things we were learning was about being a tempered radical, which is actually you work in an organization, but you become an internal radical agent within that. You have to challenge. And I think um, when... Uh, when my, just before my father died, his last words to me were, he said, strike true. And for me, that's really important because that's what values are. That's what integrity is. It's about being courageous. It's about doing what you believe is right. And, and I think when you, when, you start to, when you have the values and you start to breathe and bring those values into yourself, you become more courageous because you know what you stand for and you know what you're prepared to do. And you also know what you're not prepared to do. And so one of the things I do is I just go and challenge people. I go and ask questions. I don't criticize. As Ed said, the, the, the way to bring about change is not to force something down people's throat, but it's to challenge in an in a open and honest environment and in a way that is looking to create a positive change. And so to give one example, um, when I started doing this report, um, The Guardian was one of the great leaders of the women's movement in the 70s. And, um, and it's still, you know, it's, uh, it's very strong in terms of, of uh, women's equality, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in, in The Guardian we, and in The Observer, we had sex line ads. We had adverts which were publishing sex, line, sex phone line ads. And I thought, you know, that, that's really odd because actually how can, how can we do that? And I went to the commercial director and he said, well, you know, we make a lot of money from this. And... Um, I said, well, who's in charge? Who, who decides whether they go in the paper or not? He said, well, that's the editor's job. So I went to see the editor and I said, look, you know, this, this is inconsistent with our values. Who's responsible for this? And he said, ah, it's the Scott Trust. So I thought, okay, I'll go to the Scott Trust. So I went to the Scott Trust and I said, who's in charge of these ads going in or not? And the Scott Trust said, it's the advertising director who had originally told me not. So I went back to him and I said, look, I've gone around the houses you're in charge. How can you accept these ads? How can you accept that when it's so inconsistent with our values? And, and it, it's like, it was like a bulb turning on for him because it was just established. You know, and this is the thing with business, it's the thing with our behavior. We get established, we get our ruts. This is how we work, this is what is acceptable, and that's where we get stuck. And when you start to challenge somebody and get them to think about it, it starts to bring them out of their environment. And so I'll say, Actually, he's, he, he looked at it and said, actually, you're right. You know, we can't. And then he went to speak to his staff and they said, oh, well, we make £400,000 of profit from this a year. And that became the, the, the reason. And he said, well, go and find the £400,000 from somewhere else because actually it's unacceptable we do this. So I think 
for me, always recognize that everyone's power, everyone has power to do things. Not everyone can change the world, but everyone has the power to question and do things within their own environment. I think the other thing about business is businesses love to be competitive. They like to be the best. They like to be the leader. And I think one of the things I've been working with at The Guardian is to say, actually, let's be the best. Let's actually be, and let's, let's be the leader on sustainability within the media industry. Let's create the world's leading environment website. And actually, there's a real capacity that, that business, everyone wants to be the best. Nobody wants to be second or third best. No one wants to be average. And it's about, and business has an amazing drive. And it's about working with that drive, but actually changing things 5%. It's just changing the direction slightly. And I know one of the things that helped me understand that process was I was doing, some, uh, I was doing a, a coaching course. And the guy who was running it said, asked me, do you, do you know how to change the direction of a super tanker? And I said, no, no idea. Just turn the rudder. And he said, no, you can't, because the, the super tanker is so big that you, can, you can't turn it with one single rudder. And the way you turn a super tanker is that the rudder has many segments. And the way you turn the rudder is you turn the tiniest end segment and that starts to put a little bit of pressure on the next segment. And the next segment starts to change. And then that puts pressure on the next segment. And eventually the super tanker turns. And that's why it takes so long to turn the super tanker around. But you have to start with the first segment. If you just say, how am I going to turn this ship around? Nothing will happen. If you say, what is the one thing that I can do to make a difference? What is the one thing? And then it catches on and it catches on. And it, the other thing is it's about being passionate. You know, it's like we are human beings. We, we thrive on passion. We just do. You know, we love, you know, we love, you know, what we most want in our life is intimacy. We want connection. We want to feel passionate about what we do. And I think the thing to do is really in life is, is and in, in your business, is to be passionate. People respond to it. You know, mo most organizations, there's such a sort of deadening in organizations. There's such a, this, such a mecha mechanistic view of it. You know, we go in, so many of us go into business and, and we hide ourselves. You know, we get up, put our heads down, we get on with it. And I think the thing is that, you know, you look at anyone who creates change in this world and it always comes from a passion. It, it very rarely comes from just an intellectual interest. You've got to have the intellectual interest, you've got to have the knowledge, but actually it comes from drive. And I think that's really important. And, and, and you know, my experience of The Guardian, what I do, I do it because I'm passionate about The Guardian. The Guardian have, has an extraordinary purpose in the world. You know, we're one of the very few organizations that, is global, that has a global influence that, that is liberal, that isn't owned by huge multinational conglomerates. And it's important that, you know, that we have a voice. And the other thing is to make sure that we have an integrity of voice. So one, one of the things that was really, really important to me was that uh, we live in a very conscious world, very intellectual world, and we also know that there's a there's a world well you know there's a, there's another world going there's our subconscious there's unconscious unconscious there's energy going on. We know that nothing is just what it seems. There's more to life than just what what we see. And for me, it was really important that for us to have inte editorial integrity, that we also had business integrity. That there was a time many years ago where we would write in our leader column about blaming business for doing this or that. But then actually in our own behavior, we were doing exactly what we were complaining about. And for me, it was about saying, actually, you can't, pro you can't project something in, out into the world 
unless you're also projecting it internally. Because actually duality is always a, a separation, it's a split. It's saying it's either this or it's that. And for me, it's always about, if you can, at all possible, integrating that. It's actually saying that whatever's outside should also be inside. And actually, you know, the reason organizations lose their integrity is because they say one thing, and it's about the whole greenwash thing. They, they do all their advertising. They say how, how good they are, but actually people inside the business know they don't care. And when that happens, you get a real, you know, you, you, you get businesses starting, starting to lose their attraction to staff. People start to lose, actually wanting to make a difference. They lose their enthusiasm. And it's really important for, for businesses to, you know, that if they talk about integrity, is also to have that integrity. Um, the other thing is, um, and, and sort of just related to that, it's not just about doing the big things, it's also doing the little things. So our environmental manager is here, and it's about making sure that actually our print sites, we know exactly how much carbon is coming out of our print sites. We know exactly how much water we use. We know exactly what chemicals we're using. We are measuring that, and we are setting targets for change. There's, so, there's all the big stuff. So editorially, we now have one of the world's leading environment sites. That is what we're about. That is what creates change in the world. We launched ten, the 1010 campaign. That's about practical action. That's about trying to get people and trying to get community and trying to get the whole of this country coming together to create change. And it's important that we know exactly what ink we use in printing our paper. We know about our recycling rates. We know where we're buying our paper. We know how much we're paying our cleaners who are outsourced, etc., etc. It has to have that combination. Um, the other thing is about um, engaging staff, because I think it's really important that um, that staff are understanding of what a company can do and actually are engaged in creating change. I, I, I used to think, um, and I talk a lot at sort of CSR conferences, and I used to think that the ultimate was that once you had the board of directors who buy into a, a strategy, an environmental strategy or a sustainability strategy, that the job is done. And actually that isn't, because we now have sustainability that's embedded right through our organizations, embedded into editorial, into commercial, into our operations. We're, we're doing an extraordinary job. But actually, it's about people also playing their part and people understanding what we're trying to do. So one of the things we had, held, for instance, was a sustainability day, which was around debates. We actually challenged ourselves. So one of the things on sustainability day was the whole issue of advertising. How can we, as Ed talked about, how can we be printing about the climate change and also taking Ryanair ads, which we do? How, how, how can we live with those, with those contradictions? And so one of the things we had in the day was it was an internal debate, which was with George Monbiot, he's our environmental campaigner, the editor and the advertising director, sitting down together publicly with all staff and debating those issues. And for me, it's, it's about being honest about things. So, so many companies hide and hide behind PR, hide behind manipulation, hide behind trying to do the minimum, but make it seem like the maximum. And I think it's really important you know, to recognize that actually that's not enough. You have to be honest. You have to treat your staff honestly, and you have to treat them with respect, and you have to bring them on board. Everyone needs to make a difference. Um, the last thing I think I'll mention is, is the power of outside experts. It's really interesting because often within an organization, you can have someone who has the right answer, but actually no one listens to them. 
It's a bit like um, uh, Ed's picture of the, uh, the emperor with no clothes. You know, you need the right person to shout out that the emperor has no clothes. Someone else saying it wouldn't be heard. And one of the things that I've always found is that whenever I feel the me my message or what I'm trying to create has not been heard, is to use outside experts. So one of the things we did, we brought in Forum for the Future, which is an environmental charity run by Jonathan Porritt. And we did a visioning exercise with the board, so we did a half day with the board, which actually got them deeply involved in the subject. Outside just the intellectualization of it, but about the embedding it into their feelings, into their understanding, so they actually understand what it means and what their role is in it. And then that half day actually acted quicker than I could have done something in two years, because I'd been talking about exactly the same thing, but just having the outside experts in allowed them to see that change that they couldn't see internally. Um, I've written the last thing, which is um, be a human being. It's, it's, it's such an obvious thing. Um, and it comes back to that mechanistic view. It's so easy to just fit in especially in companies. Companies have very strong cultures. They're often very hierarchical. They're very mechanistic. You think you just have to fit in. And I think when you come out of that and just remember you're a human being and start realizing your responsibilities as a human being and what it means to you, you can actually get the courage to create change, whether it's asking a colleague to recycling their thing or if you're in, in, in a position to go and speak to your manager about why it is you're doing one thing rather than another and to recognize the power of the individual is what Amy started with it's, um, and what the book is about really it's about individuals individuals recognizing their responsibility and recognizing they can make a difference and that has always been how the world has changed it's never been anything less than individuals who's taken power into their hands and say, I can make the difference. I'm, taken, I'm going to sit and I'm going to be prepared to take the difference and I will make the difference and be really, really determined and tenacious about it. I have been working on this at The Guardian for seven years and there's sometimes, some things have taken me five years to do. And, it's, it, it, and it was worth it because people, you know, you have to understand the ebbs and flows. Not everything changes in an instant. Things take time. Organizations are structural. They're very difficult to change. They're like super tankers, and you can create the change. Thank you. Okay, we've had three, I think, what I think you'll agree, really very, very thought-provoking, very powerful and empowering speeches there. Um, and we've now got about half an hour for questions. Now, there should be a roving mic. Can I just um, have a couple of ground rules about questions? Could you actually ask a question? So um, rather than um, just delve into statements and um, long speeches, and could you wait till the mic reaches you as well? So there's a gentleman here in the, uh, uh, I think, sort of top here. So someone. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you very much for the inspiring speech, uh, talks. I'm very bad with names, so I'm going to uh, ask you by your position. Uh, the gentleman from The Guardian, thank you very much. Um, I have all these questions, uh, intellectual questions in mind, but after your very personal speech, which I loved, uh, I would like to ask you, ask you a very personal question. Um, how, um, on the one hand, how do you deal, you said about um, you don't want to have the duality, you want to be integral, right? Um, how do you deal with, um, I mean, I have the feeling that values are not sexy. They're good, 
um, but uh, I have the value, for example, CO2 emission is bad. So I think flying around the world, seeing India and all these interesting cultures, visiting my girlfriend who's doing, doing her exchange in Australia, all these kind of things, uh, they're not sexy to me to not do them, right? So um, how do you um, keep up with that, um, like not consuming these kinds of things which do your good for yourself, you know? Um, when everyone in the world, when you talk with them about it and say, I'm not doing that, and they're, they're, say, they're saying, well, I don't care. I want to have my um, uh, two weeks vacation uh, on the Maldives, uh, and anything which is much less important, I have the feeling, than actually cultural or relationship things, you know? How do you actually uh, pursue these values when you're just like this one little thing, you know? I have the feeling that consumer, cons like ethical consumerism is the hardest thing to do, and I'm a bit frustrated about it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it is, it is very hard because we live in a society where actually very few people want to do less or consume less. You know, we, 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 we you know, a lot of, you know, in the, and it's, it's only recent in our history that we felt that, but actually the pressure of you know, withdrawing from the world or withdrawing from the consumerist world is very hard because it's so enticing. And, and it reminds me of, of The Matrix. I don't know who's seen the film where, where the guy um, who's the sort of Judas character, he, he, he goes back, he wants to go back into the unreality. He wants to have his steak and he wants to have his wine and he wants to have his women even though he knows they're not true because actually it's too painful to know the truth. And I, and I think that that's the problem we're facing. It, it's too painful to know that actually we have become parasitic on this planet. It's, it's that simple. You know, we're, we're an out-of-control species. We are. We're consuming too much. <clears throat> we don't know how to stop it. We don't have a viable alternative. So it's extraordinarily difficult. I think that the one thing is not for no one to beat themselves up. You know, the fact is that people have, you know, people's values are very personal. There, there will be, there will, we know there'll be changes in society, that we know that there's going to be increasing legislation, we know there's going to be increasing regulation. At some point, the politicians, government will step in and will, have, will, will enforce the change. But I think anyone who can show that they can live a good life and be happy and not have to buy into the system is showing the way. And actually, they're the early... They're the early, you know, adopters. They're the early people who, who actually can show it's possible. I'm actually happier for doing this less. And you're starting to spread a different message. And that needs courage. And, it, and, it needs, it, and, and it's not about saying, I'm not going to go and fly to see my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, it's important if you have a girlfriend and she's the love of your life, bloody well fly and see her. <laughs> you know, and if you didn't, I'd put you on the plane. But, but that... But that's not about guilt. You can change other things in your life. You can inspire other people. But it's, about, it's partly about being honest. I think guilt, guilt, I was taught, was the superglue of life. You know, guilt is a half-learned lesson. Guilt actually creates more problems. And that's what happens with alcoholism. It's what happens with addiction. People feel so bad about what they do that they, drink, they end up drinking even more because they feel so guilty about it. They can't face their guilt, so they, so they, they consume even more. And I think that's why it's really important to understand psychology around this. Because we're addicted as a society. And it, the first thing is to stand up. You know, we know AA lessons. The first thing to say, I am society, I am addicted to alcohol. <laughs> it's really important. We have to get out of this, this haze we're in.
But guilt is not the answer. I'll just, I'll just concur with Joe on that one just very quickly, just because uh, a lot of it's about social proof as well. And flying is always the sticky one, because that's the thing that everyone loves to do. But I gave up flying six and a half years ago, went around the world without flying year before last. Uh, and now I've created a kind of lacuna of social proof around me, where everyone starts apologizing about their flying in my presence. And I'm not saying that's going to change the world, but it started to change my peer group, and it certainly changed my company. Um, and I think, you know, those things are not going to be very easy to give up voluntarily, but the first thing to cut out is the short-haul flights, where there are valid alternatives, um, and maybe not dating Australian girls. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if there's any Australian girls. We've got a question by the, by the gentleman with the glasses there. Uh, my question is for Amy. Uh, what drove you to write this book, which I love very much? <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Um, I met Chris on my master's. So, um, <laughs> um, well, the, I think as I explained at the beginning, I wrote Climb the Green Ladder because so many people wanted to change, to do something. And you know, it just, it just everyone seemed so disempowered. And I just thought there were these amazing stories of the people who were creating change and we needed to get them out there and also tease out what, what does engagement mean? You know, how... How do I facilitate engagement in my own environment? How, how do I present a business case? How, how do I, everyone was saying, well, it's all about collaboration. Well, okay, right, who can I collaborate with? How do I work together? What, what does that mean? So that's why um, I felt it was really important to bring all this information together so that people could see these are the steps you can take, you know, this is what you can do, and these are lots of real-world examples of how people have used these ideas, whether it's on a really micro level, like replacing you know, styrofoam coffee cups with China, or whether it's on a massive level, so redesigning HP packaging. You, know, you can use this stuff at every level, and, and I think that's, that's what I wanted to do. I, I thought, me at home, buying organic, trying not to fly, trying not to drive, you know, trying to do all these things, I wasn't going to make a very big change, but if I could gather all this information, use my skills as a journalist to bring it all together and to communicate it on a wider scale, then maybe I could help you know, create a larger change and inspire other people to learn from the things I was finding out about, and then we could all save the world together. Uh, a question about the gentleman right at the back there. Uh, thank you for a great speech, actually. I want to ask a question about uh, this contradiction that businesses have, actually. You know, at one end we say we have to earn profit, but at the other end we have to save the environment as well. Very true. Guardian, are you guys doing anything to cut down the adverts from the companies which are abusing our environment? Are you cutting down the adverts from the companies, actually, which are not having a sustainable model, actually? So what Guardian doing in terms of, let's say, satisfying the advertisement revenue, or, let's say, not taking adverts at all from the unsustainable companies. Okay. I, I, th I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I can argue that specific because it, it's, it's something that, that's an ongoing debate at The Guardian because yeah. actually we're losing uh, more than 30 million pounds this year, so we actually need every penny we can to, exactly. to, to, uh, to survive and, and to, you know, to keep going. But I think the thing, the thing for me is it's about the honesty around it. It's about, you know, I, I know for myself, you know, I like to project the best parts of myself and I like, I don't want to tell you about the negative aspects of my life, I want to tell you about the good things about my life. And companies are the same. Companies have a terrible fear of being found out. So do we, you know, that, again, it's basic psychology. And, and one of the ways through that is just to be honest about your problems. I mean, I, I know, if I go and see a friend 
if I if I've got a problem I'm not sharing with it, it's 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 stuck in me, you know, it's stuck in my gullet, it's stuck in my gut. And if I go and see a friend, I say, look, Bob, you know, I've got a real problem in life. I just don't know what to do. You know, it's really difficult. On the one hand, this; on the one hand, that. And it, it's a release. It, it's a, and, and we all we all have that. And yet, companies are so protective of their brands, so protective of they're so protected by PR and marketing agencies and communication <laughs> agencies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Ed. Um, that, that that actually everything is about defence. Everything is about protection. So for me, something like that is we need at the moment we need the revenue. We recognise it's a contradiction, but actually we believe that actually our editorial, people read our editorial, is very separate from our advertising. Yeah. In an ideal world, we wouldn't like to carry it. At the moment, we need to. But we're also working with those organizations. We're, in, we're working actually with organizations that are more sustainable by giving them preferential rates, et cetera, et cetera. But it's about just saying, let's be honest. It, it's a really complex situation. There are no easy answers. But let's get honest about it, because actually, it's by that, you start to find solutions. The trouble with the trust, actually, as well, because if you're honest, for example, what, why don't you do practical things? Because when you say something, implement it as well, isn't it? That's the trouble with the trust as well. People don't believe in it at the end, you know? That's the whole thing. And for the ad, I think one thing as well that uh, your agency is promoting the, the consciousness about uh, the sustainability as well. Because uh, as a business, for example, lecturer, what I normally say, okay, I, I need some solid background justification as well for doing something. I need some transparency as well. I need some quantifiable elements which convince me. So um, are you publishing any sort of report that have sort of a link of, let's say, quantifying the elements, okay, this sustainability model can lead to competitive advantages, maybe, or let's say some sort of core competency among companies? Yeah, I mean, by, there's, there's all sorts. I didn't go into the evidence in detail in the presentation, but you can find all sorts of evidence for companies which are pioneering and doing well by doing good. You know, and it's not saying that we're having a massive sustainability revolution going on already, but it is underway, and there are some enlightened businesses that are doing very well. And even if you just take something as simple as, as staff loyalty and staff retention or attracting the most able and bright-eyed graduates, where do people want to work? They want to work in businesses they believe are progressive, largely. And if you look at all the surveys of employee engagement, what do people want from a job? They want to work for a boss that they like. Uh, they want to have meaning in their work and money comes third. And money usually makes up for the first two when they're not working out for you. So use money to compensate for the fact you're working for a git uh, and you feel like there's no purpose or pointlessness to, to your career. So it, it, it's those kind of things. And I think it is the businesses which are coming up with the bright ideas and the bright solutions which will, which will come from nowhere. And it's very difficult because it's a very volatile market. You know, Ten years ago, we wouldn't have been expecting to see a lot of the, the big internet companies that are dominating the market now. And there will be big institutions which will fail. And I think there'll be a lot of fleet of foot entrepreneurs coming through. What's heartened me in the last two years in particular, as I start to feel increasingly like a seasoned old hack, is the fact that actually I come across people in their early 20s straight out of uni, and the first thing they want to do is be an environmental or sustainability entrepreneur. Uh, because they see the opportunity, because they've got a different mindset to the guys running businesses today. I think, just to add to that, I, I think um, there are two aspects to that. One is around leadership. Now, I'm sure that the great leaders of this world have not sat down and waited for the business case before they became leaders. Said, okay, I can see the business case, now I'm going to be a leader, now I'm going to be Martin Luther King because I've seen, actually, the business case for acting. Leadership is about recognizing there's an issue and actually leading, 
It's not waiting for the problem to show itself so badly that you then do it. It's saying, actually, I, I will be a visionary. I can see the way things are coming, and I'm going to get ahead of that curve. That's what leadership is about. It's about saying, I will, I, I will actually take, the, I will have the courage and take that step before other people. So you know, one aspect around this is around leadership, is recognizing that things have got to change anyway. And actually, you might as well make the best of a bad job. You might as well actually be a leader and actually, and actually build, build your future markets. The other thing is, you know, there is increasingly a business case. I mean, I, I think the one thing I've experienced is that it's a bit like a child growing up. You know, when you, when you live with a child every day, then you have to, someone comes in on the outside and said, God, your child's grown up. You say, has she? You know, I didn't notice that. And suddenly three foot taller. You hadn't really spotted because you're with it. You're with that situation every day. And I think one thing I've noticed in the past three years even is the shift is happening. The shift is speeding up. Increasingly, companies are seeing there's a competitive advantage because that's what gets business. Businesses, unfortunately, don't do things because they're charitable enterprise. They're not charitable enterprise. They're looking to maximize profit. And companies are looking now they're looking to be market leaders. As soon as they step out, other companies look and say, oh my God, Marks and Spencer is doing that. We maybe ought to do something as well. So actually that's what also creates change, not just the business case. It's actually leadership and realizing and, 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 and making use of the competition within business, harnessing that competition rather than just seeing it as a problem. There was a question from the gentleman back here. If you forgive me, uh, Chair, it's not necessarily a question. It's more an observation and maybe some support to Joe. Um, my name is Paul Toyne, and I work for a very large construction company. Um, and I'm dressed in a suit. Um, but to be honest, my background is completely different from business. Um, I trained as an ecologist at, at a University in London. I've been an activist. I've kicked multinational companies out of um, mining illegally in national parks. I've discovered new species to science. I've been a campaigner and worked for an environmental NGO. I've run my own business and been a, an entrepreneur. And now I've got a seat at the table for one of the biggest global companies in the world to actually address one of the big problems, which is, if you think about it, over 40% of our emissions come from the built environment. If you look at our cities, like London, New York, or whatever, 80% of our CO2 emissions come from cities. So what have I got? I've got a fantastic opportunity. I've got my very own live experiment to actually think about ways in which we can innovate and change the way that we live, provide solutions. And companies who want to be part of the future are innovating in this space. So on support to Joe's point, which was about honesty and integrity and the values, 100% right behind you there, Joe. And actually, the only way we're going to solve this problem, not just about climate change, but about sustainability in general, is to be far more open and honest about the problems that we have. So when I came into my company two years ago and developed a strategy around sustainability, I said we must, we must have an evidence-based approach to this, and we must be bold enough and brave enough to, to tell it as it is. So why is it that we're buying materials that we have no understanding on the provenance of them that we used in, our, in construction of our buildings? We don't know whether they're legal, first off. We don't know whether they're causing social, environmental, or ethical unrest. We have no kind of understanding about these things. So I said, well, if, if we've got a, um, a, a system for timber, which is the Forest Stewardship Council, which, funnily enough, when I was at WWF, I helped start like, develop that, which is fantastic to see. So that's 18, 20 years ago. It's brilliant. But if we can do it for timber, why can't we do it for concrete? Why can't we do it for steel? Why can't we do it for insulation? Why can't we do it for all these other products? 
that actually develop and real value to the, to the business. And as a result of that leadership position, I didn't have the solutions. But we've now got a whole supply chain that's willing to work with us to re-engineer, to innovate, to create wealth, but create wealth in the right way that can provide solutions to solve some of these problems. So to the gentleman who's got the guilt trip about going to Australia, let's not get too driven by, you know, flights, about aviation, about shipping. But let's look about what we can do in our built environment, because it's changing our behaviors and creating the right kind of infrastructure at a more decentralized level that will really solve the problems. And actually, it's far more cost effective and can be done in a shorter time scale. Tomorrow, we will be calling upon, in the UK, that we can actually transform the built environment. We can reduce emissions by 50% by 2020. We have the technology, we have the know-how. In a sense, we've almost got the political will. What we don't have is that alignment, because we haven't had that honest conversation. So we have to have honesty. The integrity is key to it all. So, you know, just to be a business voice now, supporting you, Joe, in what you said, I think it's really important that the audience understand that. And if we can have those values and those principles, honesty, integrity, and start to have these conversations, we can move things so much more faster. And just to add to that, I mean, one of the interesting things around corporate social responsibility, I remember speaking at a water conference a few years ago, and I said, corporate social responsibility is the sort of, is going to start, is the first very, very basic attempt to turn around business. It's like the, you know, the American cavalry coming to the rescue of business, because business is so fixated around making profits and around its investors. And corporate social responsibility is just the first very, very crude attempt to get businesses to say, you have other responsibilities. But the great thing is, the cat's out the bag. Once the cat's out the bag, you can't shove it back in. The fact is, companies now, not to a large extent, but a lot of companies now accept they have responsibilities beyond just making profit. And just the fact that that is, it's like a little bit of fairy dust going over business. It hasn't created fundamental change, but it's the first bit of door that's been opened that will allow change to happen. And that will, someone's going to come in and wedge that right open, because it has to, because business will have to fundamentally change. And much better it be a positive change, and that's what else will drive business, that they realize when regulation is coming down the line, much better to change themselves before the regulation comes and force them to change. So it's an incredibly complex maze, very complex puzzle, but things are starting to shift, just starting to shift. Hi. Um, I've just been thinking about Joe's image of changing a super tanker, and I wonder if it's something that maybe all of you could um, uh, answer, ask about. And I really like the way that you put it, Joe. It's just not changing the rudder, but changing the first bit, and then that knocks the second bit. I was just wondering about that and the idea of communicating things with people. So if we carry on with that image, do you tell people, I'm going to turn this super tanker around, or do you just say, I'm going to do this little thing and see the effect that it is? So, so when do you let people in on the kind of... <laughs> what you're trying to tell them. Do you tell them the whole thing all at once, or do you bit by bit? Um, it's quite interesting, thing. actually, that analogy that Joe used, because um, the, originally we wanted to call Climb the Green Ladder, Move the Elephant, because it's the same thing. You know, it, it's very hard to get companies to change direction. But once you get that momentum, you take a lot of power with you. 
And that's why we kind of liked that title, but we chose Climb the Green Ladder in the end. But um, interestingly, from a lot of the case studies you spoke to, you know, both, both ways work. You know, Roy had one fantastic case study who she just got really fed up with seeing all these styrofoam plates and cups in the office bin after lunch every day. And so she realized, she had a conversation with the CEO's wife at an office function, and she realized that she could do something about this. She didn't just have to feel frustrated. And so by that one initial step, by getting an intern to look into, you know, could they just buy some plates? Would people be okay with scraping their plates and putting them in the bin? And actually this was a case study in America where, you know, they're a bit more um, used to eating, you know, with disposable crockery and things, so they're even more resistant to change. And actually that, that one action started this green tidal wave that their car company is now the largest solar power installation in Santa Monica in 18 months. So she did that one thing and people went, wow, that was actually really easy. Okay, well, we're a you know, marketing agency. Let's start using marketing collateral. Let's start talking about it with our clients. And, and the clients would come in for lunches and see that they were using crockery and china and they that's great you know this company isn't telling us we have to do this too but we can see that they're doing all these different initiatives we want to be a part of that so for her just that one action you know started this huge tidal wave whereas other people like um paul is another one of the case studies in in the book uh, dr paul Toyn at the back there you know he was saying often you can just set this these big goals you can just say Okay, and, and Joe was saying this to me as well. You know, you know, your goal is to be carbon regenerative. So sometimes you just say, this is my big, hairy goal, and I don't know how I'm going to get there. But let's just, let's just do it, and let's just say we're going to do it. And often just by setting that goal, you then start to unpick it and each little detail. You know, so you don't have to come up with a solution overnight, but you can say, this is the goal, this is our guiding light. And we'll get there. And the thing is, is, you know, people are incredibly creative and people love a challenge. You know, people often forget that. So you give them a big challenge, you know, like let's say, you know, it's a, it's a PC and let's make all the packaging recyclable. And suddenly packaging designers who are going, they go, oh, wow, it can be the first 100% recyclable PC packaging. And they, and they actually are really driven by that. So... You know, I think it depends on your situation, what your goal is. But, you know, both ways work. So it's just, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with. If you don't feel comfortable with making an announcement to, you know, get LSE signed up to 1010, then, you know, that's okay. Start with, um, you know, your own office bin and making sure everyone, I know in your office bin you will be recycling. But, you know, you can start with your colleagues and getting them to use the recycling facilities. You know, it's, it's basically... it's. The great thing about what I, what I learned in all my research is that if you have the passion, the, these same ideas can help you make that change happen, whatever your ambitions. So just go for it, basically. Oh, just, just very quickly, I mean, I think, I think it is a, a parallel process. You have to get beyond good housekeeping. And actual fact, when you have people engaged in environmental issues, if it stays in good housekeeping, that can actually become frustrating for employees because, you know, they just, it's not about the core business. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the, the big, hairy, audacious goals, which is a tool we use quite a lot with some of the progressive companies that we work with. Uh, you know, and the, and the classic big, hairy, audacious goal is, you know, Kennedy saying, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And, or Amazon's, which is every book in every language available within 60 seconds online. And it's these type of galvanizing positive visions which get people excited. And as Amy said, you know, then you've almost 
you've given permission to act, you've let the cat out of the bag, and you've allowed people to go and be creative about how they can be fulfilled. And that's when you start to see the really radical business innovation starting to occur. And the, you know, the example I mentioned in the talk is like one of the UK's major energy companies who has have finally realised that because we have to decarbonise the energy generation sector almost entirely by 2050, that's made them completely backtrack on all sorts of decisions which have been in the pipeline for 10 years because they suddenly realised that they were about to build infrastructure which would be more or less obsolete or at least illegal to run. Uh, and, you know, and so that's a really sobering, sobering and focusing type of activity. And, and just to add, um, so when we worked with Forum for the Future, we came up with this vision to be carbon positive and environmentally regenerative. We didn't know what it meant. <laughs> I'm still not sure what it meant what it means, but actually, for us, it was the right thing to do. It's saying, as, as Amy says, it's saying, you know, for some companies, it would be ridiculous. Some companies have to know they, some companies set targets they've already met. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. A lot of companies have such a low level of, 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 um, of ambition that, they, that they'll only do things they're absolutely 100% certain they can meet with another year because they can't afford to fail, God forbid. Um, whereas we said something that we didn't quite know what it meant because actually it's a guiding star. So we want to do something. We don't know what it means, but we know we want to get there. And that's, you know, for me, in, in my own life, it's like the 17th century explorers who went out and searched the new world. They didn't have a clue <laughs> if they were going to fall off the end of the earth or not. But they, were, they headed off there. They, they, didn't, they weren't going to wait to see the satellite pictures to see where all these countries were. They, they set out. And I think, I think it's really important to, you know, where it's appropriate to always... Always push that agenda. Okay, we've, we've come to five two, so I have to disappoint anyone that wants any to ask any more questions. I'm afraid, and I think we can discuss these issues for a lot longer. Um, uh, just a few notices before uh, we thank our speakers today. First, I just uh, remind you that Amy's book can be bought outside here. So if you go through those doors at the back, you'll find that Blackwells are selling Climb the Green Ladder, and I would would strongly recommend you buy it. It's a very very inspiring book. Um, support the Guardian. I think that's a, a clear <laughs> message that's come down to today. Um, and also, um, to continue this lecture um, or seminar series about you know, sustainability and practice, there's a, um, a Climb the Green Ladder 2, as it were, um, which is next week with Dr. Uh, Victoria Hans, who's down here, who's from the LSE, and also Dr. Martin Blake from the Royal Mail. Both will be talking again on sort of similar themes about how you can put sustainability into practice. Um, so thank you very much, Rev, for your turning up today. And I want to thank Amy, I want to thank Ed and Joe for what is, I think, a really, really fascinating and very, very empowering set of speeches. So thank you very much. <laughs>